It's so good to see you today. Before we pray, I just want to note that uh, since Tuesday night, I didn't have a voice. And as of yesterday, we were working on a backup plan for who might preach today. Uh, And I say that only because my voice may slowly begin to weaken over the course of the sermon. And I I hope it's not a distraction to you, but that uh, God would give us grace to uh, endure that and uh, hear the word uh, together. So let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for the gift of your word and the life that you give to us through it. And we pray this morning that we will uh, come to your word with humble, receptive hearts and that you will give us grace to be doers of the word, not hearers only, uh, for your glory and our good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1997, my wife and I were newly married And we had a plan. Uh, We wanted a good-sized family. uh, But ironically, for those of you who know us, foster care and adoption was not part of the conversation at all. In fact, I don't remember a single conversation we had about it. It wasn't on our radar. Our plan was that we would finish up some graduate school, transition into a ministry opportunity that was in front of us. And then when we thought the time was right... We would begin to grow our family the traditional way. It seemed like a great plan until it didn't work. We finished graduate school. We transitioned into ministry. But then several years after we decided the time was right to grow our family the traditional way, our baby room was still empty. We were dealing with unexplained infertility. That definitely was not the script we had written for our lives, right? Uh, It was a hard season for us as a young couple. But over time, God, as he so graciously does, strengthened our faith to trust in the script that he was clearly writing for us, rooted in his wisdom and love. But then we were left with the question of, well, what next? And that's really a story in itself, as it led to a long season of twists and turns. But when all was said and done, my wife and I arrived at the point where we felt God calling us to grow our family by means of adoption through the foster care system. Little did we realize that that decision would radically change our lives in so many different ways. As these incredible kids began to come in and through our home... What had been a pretty abstract reality to us, kids in foster care, became incredibly concrete. These were no longer statistics in a category, right? The kids in foster care. They were real kids with real names, real faces, real personalities. Each one of them had a story unique to themselves, they had real needs. And they had real futures, real hope, real potential. More significantly for us, as we begin to see them through the lens of our faith, we begin to see each one as an individual person, uniquely created in the very image of God, and therefore in possession of an inherent dignity and value that not only was worthy of our care, but we believed, excuse me, demanded our care, particularly as a young couple who believed in the sanctity of every human being. How could we, as 
pro-life Christians who advocate for life in the womb not be willing to care for those same lives when they needed a family. And so my wife and I decided, and this is to no credit of ourselves, this is only a work of God's grace in our life, we decided we would do whatever we could within our capacity, and I think sometimes it felt like outside our capacity to care for as many kids as we could. So over the years, we've had the joy and privilege of having about 30 kids come through our home who are in foster care, six of whom we've had the privilege of uh, becoming part of our family through adoption. Well, as this was happening, happening, in the early days of this journey, I began for the very first time in my life to consider this issue, children who need families in our community, through the lens of my faith. It was sort of like when you decide to buy a particular car, right? The last vehicle we bought was a Ford Transit, right? We need a big vehicle. And when we decided to buy that car, all of a sudden I was seeing them everywhere on the road around me. It's not because they weren't on the road previous to that. It's because suddenly I was thinking about them and therefore I was noticing these vehicles that were there all along. And so as I began to read the Bible through the lens of this new issue that God had brought before me, I was overwhelmed with the multiplicity of biblical pathways that led to the same biblical destination. Namely, that our faith in Jesus compels us to be the kind of Christian community who cares about the vulnerable around us, those who are often on the margins and easily forgotten and taken advantage of in society, including very specifically this biblical category of children in need of families. And I discovered it it was so uh, important to the degree that Scripture actually describes caring for children in need of homes as one of the authenticating marks that the Christian community has experienced authentic repentance and is practicing pure and undefiled worship. That's pretty significant. Think about that. Caring for children in need of families is presented in Scripture as one of the authenticating marks that the Christian community has experienced authentic repentance, as was read earlier at Isaiah 1, and is practicing pure and undefiled religion. Scripture teaches this in many different ways, including in our text this morning, James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, which I'll read again for us. There James says, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The main point of the sermon this morning is simply this, practice pure and undefiled religion. Practice pure and undefiled religion. And we're going to consider this through two points. Point number one will be the source of pure and undefiled religion. And we're going to draw this point from the context of James chapter 1 leading up to verse 26 and 27. What is the source of pure and undefiled religion? 
And then point number two, the practice of pure and undefiled religion, verse 26 and 27. And we'll look at all three, two verses there, but we're really going to specifically zero in when all is said and done on this issue of children who need families as an act of pure worship. So before we go further, though, let me just take a moment right up front to better understand what the text means by this phrase, pure and undefiled religion. Because for some of us, we may have a negative connotation of this idea of religion. Perhaps you've heard, or maybe even you've said yourself, something like, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, right? I've heard that, maybe said that, and it's a beautiful sentiment that says something so important about our Christian faith, but it's not really accurate. Because clearly here in verse 27, the Spirit speaks of Christianity as a religion in the truest sense and biblical sense of the word. The term religion in verse 27 refers to the true worship of God with an emphasis on external expressions in our lives that reflect an internal reality of an authentic experience of the gospel. So true worship is external expressions reflecting an internal reality. That's the idea of that word. Now, James 1.27 speaks of pure and undefiled religion. These are words rooted in the Old Testament ceremonial law by which uh, God required offerings made to him be ceremonially cleansed, offered to him without spot and blemish. And sacrifices offered to God without spot and blemish were acceptable and pleasing to God. He received them and accepted them. Those are the words that he's using to describe the kind of religion that James uh, calls us to practice here in verse 27. It's religion, it's, it's, a, it's external expressions in our life that reflect an internal reality and therefore bring pleasure to God. They're acceptable to him. Well, if that's the case, if there's a type of religion that is acceptable to God because it's pure and undefiled, then we want to be practicing that kind of religion, don't we? So, let's consider point number one, the source of pure and undefiled religion. Now, James assumes that before we get to verse 26 and 27, we've already heard and understand everything that's come already in the letter, and we're interpreting verse 26 and 27 in light of that. All right? But before we get to that, let me just say a word about the book of James since we're just kind of jumping right into this letter. James is written to first century Jews who had become followers of Jesus and were living outside of Palestine or Israel, in exile, as it were, if you could, you could say. Life for them outside of Israel was really hard, filled with all kinds of trials, temptations, persecutions. And as you read the letter, it's clear that there were some conflicts happening within the different Christian communities that he's writing to. So James, who's the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, writes this letter to them, very early letter, perhaps the earliest one written, encouraging them to demonstrate the authenticity of their faith through faithful, wise living. Demonstrate the realness of their faith through faithful, wise living. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, you could call, title, Endure Trials. 
in these first verses of the letter, he's going to urge Christians to joyfully endure trials, the many different challenges we face, knowing that God is actually using all of these trials as a means of grace in our lives to strengthen our faith, enabling us to persevere in following Jesus all the way to the end of the Christian journey, that day in the future when we will be crowned with the gift of eternal life in the presence of God, verse 12. So endure trials, but there's a sense of urgency about needing to endure in our following of Jesus because verse 12 says that it's only through enduring in our faith in Jesus all the way to the end that we demonstrate that our faith was indeed genuine as was our love for God. The subtle implication being if we don't follow Jesus to the end, not talking about the many times all of us stumble turn away, drift, step back from following Jesus, and then need to repent and follow him again as we stumble forward, right? But talking about the person who, in light of life's trials, makes a definitive, I'm no longer following Jesus. That person who turns away demonstrates that their faith isn't genuine, and neither is their love for God, and that's a sobering reality. But the question is, well, how do we endure trials in our lives when our hearts are so prone to easily be led astray by our own sinful desires that give birth to sin, resulting in spiritual death? That's the message of verse 13 through 16. Endure temptation. And you get to the end of verse 16, and there's lingering question in our hearts is, how can we faithfully endure trials and temptations in our lives? What is the hope we have to be able to do this? And that brings us to the two most important verses in the book of James, verses 17 and 18, which provide the answer to that question. The reason we can have hope to endure is because God is a gracious Father who graciously gives to us every good gift and every perfect gift that we need in the context to endure trials and temptations. Most notably, the most important gift he has given us toward this end is verse 18. The gift of the new birth. Look at verse 18. By his own choice, God our Father... He gave, there's this idea of a gift, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we who've experienced this new birth would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, James again is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem writing to first century Jews who were followers of Jesus. I'm convinced that as James writes this, he has in mind the long history of God's people, Israel, who for centuries and centuries had taken comfort in the fact that they were uh, externally part of the covenant community of God, they were God's people, and they engaged in all kinds of external religious practices. And yet, for century after century after century, they demonstrated that while they perhaps were part of God's people on the outside, their hearts were not, did not belong to God. 
They continually gave themselves over to worship idols, to participate in the sins of the prevailing culture, and particularly to fail to love those around them. And so you find throughout the Old Testament, God speaking to his people to say things like he said in Isaiah 49, these people honor me, worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's your heart I want. Joel 2 verse 13, he says to them, don't tear your clothes, which was an external ritual signifying mourning and lament often over sin. He said, don't tear your garments, tear your what? Hearts. It's your heart that I want. This, even at what was read earlier in Isaiah chapter 1, it's such a powerful passage where he's saying, I- I'm tired of these external acts of worship you're bringing me when they don't match up with your heart. What I really want to see is heart repentance. So come to me and I will forgive you and turn from sin and learn to do good. And so throughout the Old Testament... God sprinkles in these beautiful promises that he is going to give to us what we desperately lack, a new heart. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God says to Israel, this is the first generation of Israelites who are about to enter the promised land. He says to them, you are starting a journey that's going to lead to generations of turning from me, but don't worry, one day I will circumcise your heart. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, the day is coming when I will put my teaching within your heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, I am going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to take that heart of stone, that big, dead, lifeless rock that's inside of you. I'm going to remove it and I'm going to replace it with a living heart of flesh that's alive to me, that's sensitive to me, that loves me. And then Jesus appears in John chapter 3 and he's having a conversation with one of the religious leaders of the day. One of the men that you would look at and say, wow, this person is religious. And Jesus looks at this man and says, Nicodemus, if you want eternal life, you must be born again. And so, with that in mind, we come to James 1.18. What is James saying here? He's saying to this first century group of Christians, and to us by extension, that God has fulfilled all of these promises made for so many centuries in them. They have received from God the gift of new birth, a new heart. What an incredible moment for them. Now, if you're here today and you're perhaps not a Christian or newer to the faith, exploring it, this concept of new birth might seem kind of strange to you. What is a new birth? What does that even mean? When the concept of the new birth is a reference to a biblical teaching that says that, that as human beings were born into this world in a condition of spiritual death. And that's a pretty sobering and ominous thought. It simply means that by nature we are sinners who fail to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and fail to love others as we should. Instead, we're turned inward and we we put ourselves first and love ourselves above others and God. And as a result, we're separated from God who is the source of eternal life. Therefore, we are by nature in a state of death, spiritual death. 
And because we're dead spiritually, we have no hope of delivering ourselves from that condition unless an outside force of some kind would operate on us, giving us spiritual life. But the good news, according to verse 18, is that God is a God who gives this gift of new birth, of new life. You say, well, how does he give this gift of new life to us? That sounds like something I want or need. Well, look at verse 18. He says, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That little phrase, by the word of truth, if you study that out in the New Testament, that's a reference to the good news about Jesus. It's as we hear the message of good news about Jesus that the Spirit of God makes us alive. What is the message of good news about Jesus? It's the good news that Jesus came to earth, the Son of God, as a man to do for us what we should have done but couldn't do. He lived the perfect life of obedience. He was tempted in every way like we are, but he never sinned. Jesus always loved God with every part of his being. Jesus always loved others the way he should. It's incredible to imagine that. He deserved nothing but life and favor and blessing, and yet he willingly gave his life up on the cross, dying in our place, experiencing physical and spiritual death for us, taking the judgment that we earned and we deserved. He died on that cross, he was buried, and then three days later he rose again, signifying that the Father accepted his sacrifice as a pure and unblemished sacrifice, And that he had complete victory over sin and its consequences, including spiritual death. So that now he can give us the gift of new birth, new life. So the the, the way a person experiences the new birth is that when we hear that message of the gospel and respond to it in faith, trusting in what God has provided for us in Jesus, we will discover that every sin is completely forgiven. We are given the gift of eternal life. And we will find that we have a new heart. We've been made new on the inside. The Spirit has come to live in us and give us new desires, new inclinations. We want to love God. We want to follow Him. That's what He's saying here in verse 18. And He gives us this new birth, notice verse 18, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of His creation. This is is going back to this idea of an offering in the Old Testament where the harvest would come in and they would take the first part of that harvest and offer it as a gift to God, as a thanks offering to God, indicating thank you for this and every part of the offering that's going to come. This is devoted to you as is the rest of it. We know you're going to bring the rest in. And he says "We, we have experienced the new birth and now we are part of that first fruits indicating that there's still a whole harvest of others to experience this, culminating in God's full work of making all things new again. That's the work that God's going to do. And we are made a first fruits people to be devoted to God, demonstrating this beautiful work. So, everything else in the book of James springs out of this idea. That we have experienced the new birth and that changes everything. True Christianity is not a religion that is external. It starts from the inside because of the work of grace that God does within us. And if we experience the new birth from God, it can't help but express itself in the way in which we live. 
the way in which we live begins to increasingly reflect the realities of what God has done in our hearts. The DNA of the Father is now in us and flowing out of us by his grace. If you look at James 1, one of the most notable immediate ways that this is demonstrated in verses 19 through 25 is the way in which we respond to the word of God. Those who have experienced the new birth now have the word implanted in them, fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. And we respond to the word of God with a humble heart and a desire to obey it. Those who haven't experienced the new birth may hear the word of God, but because it's not matched with a heart that's been made anew and now loves God, they aren't able to and don't desire to obey it. The new birth changes everything. It's the source of this new life that we live as first fruits of God's ultimate work of redemption. And that brings us to verse 26 and 27, the capstone of chapter 1. Verse 26 and 27 we'll call point number two, the practice of pure and undefiled religion. Do you see what's happening in the flow of James 1? What James is saying is we've experienced this internal new birth by the grace of God, and it changes everything, including the way in which we practice religion. Verse 26 and 27 is a description of the kind of religion practiced by those who have, in fact, experienced the new birth. And there's three examples he gives. The first is stated negatively, and the other two are positively. So let's quickly look at verse 26. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious, so he's a person who looks at his life and makes the conclusion, I'm a religious person, probably because in this context they were engaged in many religious activities. They identified with the body of Christ. They heard the word. They gathered with God's people. Chapter 2, they made a profession of faith and believed certain truths about God that were accurate. They thought they were religious, but at the same time, they do not control their tongue, particularly in how they speak to and about other people, as you discover if you read the rest of the letter. James is very concerned that there are people who profess to be Christians who are cursing image bearers of God, who are complaining and slandering and uh, making promises that they don't keep. They're sinning against others with their tongue as a characteristic trait. And in so doing, they're betraying that while they think they're practicing true religion, that religion is actually empty and worthless because it's betraying the fact that they haven't experienced the new birth. How is that possible? Because Jesus said in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. So James is saying our speech is kind of like that engine light on the dashboard. It's there and you can ignore it. But it may be indicating that there's some serious trouble underneath the hood that you better check out and take care of. That's what our speech is like. Right? Not, the kind, not the fact that we all struggle with our speech, by the way. I'm talking about characteristic sin against other people. 
You see how he's connecting this back to our experience of the new birth and what true religion looks like and how it flows out of a heart change. In fact, some believe that it's tied to the idea, even more specifically, that God has given us the gift of the new birth by the word of truth. And he continues to grow that new life in us, verse 22 through 25, by his word. Therefore, we who are receiving life from the word of God will use our own words to give life and healing to others rather than to hurt others. So our practice of religion reflects our experience of the new birth. And that brings us to verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion... Before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Notice verse 27 is not a command. He's not telling us to do anything there. Verse 27 is a description of a representative example of what pure and undefiled religion looks like when it's practiced. Now, many places in Scripture, he does command us to do both things mentioned here, but not here. This is just an assumption that those who are practicing genuine religion out of the new birth in their heart, this is one example of what it looks like. So, we've already talked about the phrase pure and undefiled religion. Let's talk about these two examples. Let's start with the second one because we're going to end by really going deep into the idea of children who need homes, okay? But very quickly, the the last phrase says, uh, one way we practice pure and undefiled religion is by keeping ourselves unstained from the world. And again, we see how this ties back to our experience of the new birth in verse 18. We experience the gift of the new birth so that we would be a first fruits of his creatures, And therefore, one of the ways we practice pure religion is by living lives devoted to God rather than the world. And so much of what James is going to talk about in the rest of the letter falls under this heading of living lives devoted to God rather than being stained in our life by the values of the world around us that dominate our thinking and our way of life. And so it is an act of pure and undefiled religion that is acceptable to God when his people who have been delivered and given a new birth so that we'd be a first fruits devoted to him live that way in our lives. But there's this other way we demonstrate pure and undefiled religion. And it's that first part of the verse in 27. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. Orphans and widows would have been the most vulnerable population of that day. Their entire provision had been removed from them. And these were in distress, indicating there seemed to have been no backup, no family, and there certainly was no social safety net for them. And so imagine being a widow with no family or an orphan, a child, a four-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old with no family and no social safety net. You would be incredibly vulnerable. In fact, they were pretty much considered worthless. They were marginalized, oppressed, mistreated, trafficked, and many of them left to die, essentially. If you said to the prevailing culture of that day, hey, true religion is to care for these people, they would have said, that. What do they matter? 
And yet God says, no, actually one of the marks of true worship is that we care for widows and orphans in their distress. Now the word distress is a pretty powerful word. It has the idea of being pressed around on every side so that you feel like there's nowhere to go and you're about to be crushed. It reminds me of when my wife and I took a group of teenagers caving. We were on a long, like a college uh, senior trip, and one of the things we did was caving. Not just walking through a cave. It was like serious spelunking. Okay, impressive word, right? And there was all little excursions along the way that you could or couldn't do in this cave. And one of them was called the birth canal because it was so narrow and tight. And as he was explaining this, he said, hey, you're going to have to crawl, but then you're going to get to a point where you have to literally get down in your stomach, and the only way through is to kind of wiggle like this. That's how tight it is. Any claustrophobics here would have trouble with that? Well, we had this big group of people, teens, and they're all kind of saying, around, like, do we want to do this? And so my wife, being the adventurous person she is, says, I'll go first. And so she goes first. I said, okay, I better follow her. And then we have a train of people kind of following us. So we walk in, then we crawl, then we get to this point where, you know, we're starting to the wiggle. And then all of a sudden, Virginia says, eh, wait, I can't do it. Back up. And so we all start to back up and crawl and then get up. The pressure was so great closing in on her. She felt so overwhelmed that she felt, understandably, I can't go any further. This is going to crush me. That's the strength of this word. Widows and orphans who find themselves so consumed with problems and trials and challenges with no way to get out of them themselves. That's who we're talking about here. And God says it's a mark of pure and undefiled worship to Look after. Some of your translations probably say visit. The idea of the word is a beautiful incarnational redemptive word. It means to come into close proximity with. To enter into the distress with. In order to care for, look after, serve. It's used of God many times in scripture. Speaking of God visiting his people in a redemptive way. To be our advocate. To be our deliverer. To be our helper and redeemer. And God says it is pure religion before him when his people see those around them in great distress and are compelled to move into it. Now, make no mistakes. Make make no mistake here. God is not saying that we earn God's favor in our lives as an act of self-righteousness by seeing people who need, who are in distress and saying, I'm a really good person. I'm going to go love that person. What he's saying is, by entering into the distress of those around us, coming near to them in order to serve and love them, we are demonstrating that we have indeed had a true encounter with the living God by grace through faith in Christ, which has resulted in a new heart, the Father's heart for others compelling us when we see need to be the kind of people who not out of duty or obligation or I better do this or I'm being manipulated into doing this, but out of a heart that's compelled by love and compassion for others, a willingness to move into the hard spaces to be with and love those who need help. Why is this? Of all the things that God could have given as an example, why this? Well, in part, because again, it reflects our own experience of God's love. Look back at verse 18. By God's own choice, 
Not because God had to, was compelled to, was forced in any way, as though anyone could force God to do anything, but out of his own gracious, loving desire to, he gave us the gift. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love he had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. That's another word for gave us new birth. He made us alive in Christ. By grace, you are saved. So the very reason we have hope in eternal life and we have been born into the family of God is because God, purely out of love for us, saw us in our eternal affliction and distress and moved toward us. By grace, providing us the deliverance and salvation we need. So we who've experienced that kind of grace are compelled by it to be a people who move toward others and lavishly extend to them that same radical love and hospitality. And you know, it makes sense because if you read scripture, you see over and over again God revealing not only his heart to rescue sinners, and to bring them into his family, but his heart for those who in this fallen world, cursed by sin in, in individual lives and in systems all around us, to, to his heart is for them, for the vulnerable, for the resident alien, for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan. Psalm 68 verse 5 says, God is a father to the fatherless, a champion of the widow, the one who places the lonely in families. Hosea 14.3, in you the fatherless have compassion. Psalm 10, 17 and 18, you will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause them terror. Even here in James chapter 5, in a different context, he's strongly condemning the wealthy landowners who are mistreating and robbing the day laborers so that they could become wealthy on their backs. And he's condemning them and says, judgment is coming to you. God sees and cares about this, and he cares about the people who are taken advantage of and hurt because of it, including this biblical category of children who need families. And so we have this DNA implanted within us via the new birth and the indwelling spirit, and therefore we are called to demonstrate true religion by practicing this way. Now, this doesn't mean this is the only way to practice pure and undefiled religion. These are representative examples. James isn't suggesting that these are the only two types of people in distress that we should care about. This is kind of a part representing the whole of people around us who are in need, who God calls us to practice worship, says that true worship will care for. But he did choose this specific example, didn't he? He does over and over again, in particular, highlight the widow and the child who needs a family. I don't think we should take that lightly as his people. And so let's think about that in our context today. Are there orphans in distress in Rhode Island, 
and in Massachusetts. Now, there are many orphans around the world, and there are many kids who need families all around this country and the world. But let's just think about the most pressing immediate context. Providence, Riverside, Warwick, Cranston, Johnston, North Shore, Boston, Newton, all these places around us. Are there kids who fall into this category? What do you think? The answer is definitively yes. They're not orphans in the truest sense of the word, and in our ministry we never refer to them as orphans. I won't get into why right now. But they fall into this biblical category of kids who temporarily or permanently need families. Kids right now in our own community who at no fault of their own have been removed from their biological caregivers because it's been deemed temporarily at least unsafe for them to be able to stay there put in a child welfare system, and and get this, listen to this. Many of them are able to live with kin, like aunts and grandparents, or people they know, like a teacher or a family friend, but many of them have no one like that to live with. And so those kids have no voice, no efficacy, nothing they can do. They are completely dependent that there are people they don't even know, neighbors and fellow citizens, willing to extend to them the kind of radical love and hospitality that God has shown to us in welcoming us into his family. They are completely dependent on that. So let me give you three facts about the current state of this. In Massachusetts and Rhode Island right now, there are about 12,000 kids living in the foster care system. Right? And when you think about that number of kids, it's easy to reduce them like I did when I told you in the story earlier to a statistical category. But every one of those 12,000 kids is an individual one, individual person, baby, a toddler toddling around, a preschooler learning to count and learning their alphabet, kindergartner and first grader learning to read and write, an elementary school age kid. A middle schooler making that awkward transition into high school. High schoolers, even young adults in some case. Look after church and see all the kids running around, right, having fun. It's those kinds of kids. It's them out there in our community. And here's the fact. There's an urgent shortage of foster families willing and able to welcome them into their home. So what that means is, as a society, we are removing this child from their home, saying to this child, essentially, temporarily, it's not safe for you to be in in your home. But then we have to say to them, but you know what? There's not enough people to, to care for you. And so as hard as it's been already for you, it's still going to be hard. That's the reality. Second fact, right now in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, there's about 2,000 kids on the track to be adopted, which means the decision has been made that they're probably not going to return home. They will need to be adopted. But for those 2,000 kids, there has not yet been a family identified to adopt them. So many of them are languishing in the system. Many of them, their parental rights have already been terminated. They are not going to return home. They've been told they're not going to return home, and they're just waiting waiting for a family, willing and able to say, you can be part of our family. Third fact, every year in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, there are approximately 300 to 500 kids who age out of the system, having never returned to their biological families and having never been adopted. 
300 to 500 kids right around us who age out. Think about the significance of that. The average age of an adoptable child is nine. So there's kids younger than that, there's kids older than that. The average age is nine. So let's take that average and think about a child who at nine years old is told by their social worker, mom and dad's rights have been terminated. You're not going to be able to go home. But don't worry, we're going to try to find a new family for you. And then for 300 to 500 of them, from the age of 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and for many of them, 19, 20, and 21. For 10 to 13 years, as a society, we come and that social worker says, sorry, no family yet is able to take you into their home. Until they reach that age where they age out and we say, good luck. That's what's happening every year, three to 500 years, three to 500 kids. These are kids in distress. Now, I'm not saying this to be manipulative. In fact, that would contradict the very point that James is making here. James is saying, he's not saying, visit children who need families in their distress because you're pressured to, you feel manipulated, you have to do it as duty. No. What he's saying is those who've experienced the new birth and have the Father's heart of love for those in distress are compelled when they're exposed to it to meet the need. They don't think about it. They're compelled to want to meet the need because of God's work of grace in their own life. And so I'm certainly not wanting to or trying to manipulate. And number two, I'll say, I recognize that not everyone is called to foster or adopt. In fact, when we work with churches, most of our churches we work with right now in Massachusetts, our philosophy is not everyone is called to do everything or the same thing, but we all can all do something. Maybe it's prayer, maybe it's financial support, maybe it's service, maybe it's supporting a foster or adoptive family through encouragement, through help, through child care. And in fact, if you followed me when I was consulting families, you would think, does he want people to foster and adopt? Because <laughs> I asked them so many questions and I push back so much about their motives and why they're doing it. And some, oftentimes I recommend they wait. So I'm certainly not suggesting that everyone can or should. And thirdly, the third caveat is, as I already mentioned, again, James 1.27 is representative. And so I don't look at someone in judgment personally who's not doing foster care or adoption and assume that they're not practicing pure and undefiled religion. There's all kinds of people all around us who are in distress. My assumption is that the Spirit of God is compelling us in many different ways with many different types of people, including ourselves. We're in distress often and need some help to move into the lives of others and practice that kind of pure and undefiled worship in different ways. That said, that said, this is clearly something God cares about. Right? Clearly, he's saying one of the most beautiful and powerful ways we demonstrate what God has done in us is by stepping into the life of a child who needs a family and caring for them, most notably by welcoming into our home. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be amazing if the Christian community collectively rose up and became known as a people who put their actions where their mouth is as we proclaim so vehemently, so vociferously our position on the pro-life position 
Wouldn't it be amazing if we stood up and said, yes, we really do value these lives. Do you know if Roe v. Wade was actually overturned in every state within a decade, the number of kids in foster care would triple to one and a half million, and there'd be 350,000 kids who now need an adoptive family. And as, as a community, perhaps politics aside, for perhaps advocating for the pro-life position and what's going on right now in society, are we prepared to receive these kids who we would advocate for in the womb into our family when they need homes. And I would say we're not prepared because we're not doing it now. There are tens of millions of Christian households throughout our country. There's only 100,000 kids in foster care who need a family. We're more than able to do this. So I think it's legitimate to ask ourselves the question, and again, as I say this, I want to remind us that our righteousness is not found in our works. Our righteousness is found in Jesus. My righteousness is not found by the fact that I've adopted six kids. My righteousness is in Jesus. Okay? But that said, I think there's a couple good questions to ask ourselves. Number one, if we have space in our life, if we have that spare bedroom, that guest room someone stays in a couple times a week, or we could make space in our room, and we have room around the table, and we have food in our cupboards, and we have income that's coming in every week, and we have experienced the new birth of God's grace, and we hear that there's a child in our community who literally needs a family. But our heart quickly rejects that and says, oh, no way, it's not me. And listen, I get it, because that was me. When my wife first came to me, having explored different possibilities and came back with the idea of adopting out of foster care, my first response was, I don't think so. And I gave all the excuses that are imaginable as to why we shouldn't do this. It took time for God to change my heart. So I understand that. But what does it say if we so quickly just say, no way? What does that say? I'm not sure what it says. It might say there's really good reasons why we shouldn't. But maybe not. Maybe it says we're actually not practicing this second area of uh, pure worship, that we are actually being stained by the world system that so prioritizes comfort and ease and my priorities instead of a willingness to disadvantage myself for the good of others. I'm not sure what it says, but I think it's a good question to ask. A second question that's interesting to ask is if those facts I shared earlier are true, if there are 2,000 kids in foster care right now in Mass and Rhode Island who are on the track of adoption without a family identified, and if three to 500 every year will age out without a family, can we say as a broad Christian community that we are practicing authentic religion? Or at least perhaps as a big blind spot in our practice of pure and undefiled religion. Now, I think that if I could bring across the stage kids, hold a little baby, hey, this is so-and-so, she's in foster care, a little toddler playing up here, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old could stand and speak to you this morning and say to you, hi, my name is, I need a family right now. I can't go home. Is there anyone here who could be family for me? I think if that happened, there would be a whole lot of you who would see these precious kids and say, oh my goodness, we got to figure this out. It's going to be hard, yes. There's going to be challenges, yes. We're going to need help and support, yes. We're going to need some training, yes. But, but we've got to help this child. But we can't do that. These kids aren't going to come in front of us and say that. 
So part of our ministry as an organization is, is Proverbs 31, 8, and 9 ministry. It's a verse I have on my wall in my office. The Hartmans put it on, uh, 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 what do you call that? Uh, a board. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's, you know, it, what do you call it? They wrote uh, stenograph, beautiful painting, and it says, uh, speak for those who have no voice. Speak on behalf of those who are destitute and poor and needy around you. And so today, I say to us as a church community who have experienced the lavish grace of God and the new birth by his grace in the gospel, I don't know what God may want to do in and through us, but I know this, one of the most beautiful displays of true religion reflecting the gospel of God's grace to us is when we open up our hearts and homes to visit those who need families and to even welcome them. Uh, My time's up. One last thought. You know, the state of Massachusetts over the last six, seven years, has invested millions of dollars in recruitment to the point that they've hired 29 recruiters, one for each area office, whose entire full-time job is to every day try to recruit foster families and adopt. That's their job because the need is so great. And we love them. We work well with them. We have a great relationship with them. But I kind of think that there shouldn't need to be recruiters as the Christian community collectively hears, what? There are kids right in our backyard who need families? Hey, DCF, we heard there's kids who need families. You're asking us to invite them into our home and our broader church community and make them part of our life? We're here. What can we do? So let's flip the scripts together by God's grace so that instead of kids waiting for homes... There are families raised up, willing, and able, but they're the ones who are waiting because the need is so easily met. Let's be a community that displays and blazes forth the beauty and glory of God's adopting grace in and through us by rising up and demonstrating so visually and beautifully his grace in this way. Pure and undefiled religion to care, visit the widow and orphan in their distress. May God make it true in our lives today. Father, thank you so much for the new birth that you've given us. And thank you for uh, the undeserved favor you've just lavished on us. And Lord, I do pray that you would stir our hearts to reflect your fatherly love in new and profound ways. And we ask that in the days and months and years ahead, right within this church community and other Christian communities throughout Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New England, that your spirit so work that there would be multiple kids and teenagers and adults one day whose lives and legacies were, were transformed because your people welcomed them into their family, said yes to them in their distress. Would you do that for the beauty and glory of your name and for the good of many? In Jesus' name, amen.